So uh, an interesting thing about the Broken Rock Ranch is where it's located. It's located right near Atlas Peak and Oak Knoll. And um, what's interesting about it is, is it's uh, there's these different soil types uh, right along it. You have the uh, alluvial fan uh, through Oak Knoll, which is a very interesting soil thing. And then you have all the schist uh, up there through the bottom of uh, of uh, Atlas Peak. So we like to say it's where the uh, schist hits the alluvial fan. <laughs> so as far as bad wine jokes go... We can air that, right? I, uh, if you actually retell that joke ever, you you define yourself as a, as someone who's irreparable as a, a wine geek. Right. All right. Welcome to Another Bottle Down. This is a podcast about wine, uh, wine appreciation, meeting various folks in the wine industry and and talking about business of wine and, and all of the wonderful things that come along with this majestic beverage. My name is Mark Rayshap. Another Bottle Down is a production of Co-op uh, Radio in Austin, Texas, and we broadcast on 91.7 FM, and then, of course, make this podcast. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking with Kevin O'Brien from Expression Wines and Prime Solum, uh, and Steve Alley from The Sorting Table, who uh, distributes the wines uh, the sorting table imports various amazing wines from around the world, so it's going to be—it's great to have those guys on the podcast. Uh, a couple plugs before we get going, and and we are going to be talking about Pinot Noir, various sites of cool climate Pinot Noir in California and Oregon. Uh, so I really learned a lot, and I'm and I'm sure you will as well. Um, but a couple plugs before we get going. Uh, first, if you're in the Austin area, I urge you to check out the uh, Austin Wine Experience. This is a first year of this amazing event. It's October 1st. There's going to be seven educational seminars taught by sommeliers from uh, around the Austin and Texas area. Um, things like, can you tell champagne from sparkling wine or uh, the Italian uh, Titans, Barolo versus Brunello. So amazing, uh, amazingly cool stuff. There's a panel of winemakers uh, talking about Texas wine, things re- really relevant to the, the Austin area. Uh, and then meanwhile, there's going to be a great Grand tasting with various restaurants and uh, over 85 different wines to taste. So if you're in the Austin area, check it out, winefoodfoundation.org to get tickets and for more information. Also, uh, if you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, definitely I, I would love you to do so. Go to the iTunes store right now. Stop driving, go to the iTunes store, uh, and, and search for Another Bottle Down Radio, and click the subscribe button, and leave a comment, tell your friends. It's really the best way to get these great conversations out there, and I would love any feedback and um, and anything that you guys want to hear. So uh, that's it for now. Let's get into the interview with Kevin O'Brien and Steve Alley from Expression Wines, Prime Solum, and the sorting table. So please do enjoy. Let's start with that. Let's start with the story that you have to tell. Tell us about what Expression Wines is and and Prime Solum as well. Yeah, the, these are um, these are wines that come uh, out of the mind of, B- of Bill Hill. And uh, to kind of tell the story of the wines, you need to sto- tell the story about uh, Bill a little bit. Um, 
you know, Bill is a guy, he came originally from um, Oklahoma, he came out to uh, California, and, and I, I, he didn't really have in his mind that he was going to come out and make wines. He wasn't some, you know, rich guy who came out and just bought a bunch of vineyards and said, oh, I'm going to do this. You know, he came out from a farming background, and uh, he went out to California, but he was a smart guy. He went to school. I mean, um, I, I'm not going to tell the story of a of a guy who just kind of went out and figured out. I mean, he went to Stanford. Like, he was... Uh, you know, he had some smarts with him to begin with. And, uh, but, you know, during his time there, it's a classic, you know, gone, gone up to Napa and, you know, had some wine, noticed it. But people do that these days, but you got to imagine Napa back then. Yeah, what year are we talking about? Yeah, here we're then? talking in the 70s. 70s. Yeah, so, um, and and Bill also, you got to figure out the way he did it. You know, when he went to Napa and said, oh, I love it, and I... It, he, while he was there, he he was looking at the hillsides. He was like, he was imagining, you know, vineyards in different places. It was just something that was natural in the way he went about things. And um, so Napa wasn't really planted. Sonoma was the wild frontier. So little being done in Mendocino, um, and, and so you have empty hillsides, right? Yeah, uh, you, uh, not all of them, but quite sure, a few. Sure. So, um, you know, Bill was the first guy. He went up onto Diamond Mountain and developed Diamond Mountain Ranch. He went up into Mount Veter and he developed the vineyards up there that uh, would later be purchased by like Jackson Family Estates and things like that for La Coya and what have not. And, and he he developed also back then the up on the top of Atlas Peak, which is a lot closer to. Uh, the William Hill winery that he created, but also closer to uh, his Broken Rock Ranch. But he developed that uh, right atop Atlas Peak, this property for Ant- Antonori, which is, uh, you know, a, a great property and still around today. And it's next to a ranch called uh, Circle R Ranch, which is something that we use in the, the Prime Solum wine um, yeah. as well. But in any case, um, I, I think the idea is, is that uh, – Bill had he had had it he had been to Europe once he had seen all the vineyards on the hillsides there, and then you know while he's in school out in California he had got a chance to head up to Napa, and he you know he kind of just asked himself why aren't the vineyards on the hillsides here, and um, it's not that there weren't any but you know um, right so this is I think that for folks listening out there they may or may not know this but there's a big dichotomy in Napa Valley between the valley floor, and then the hillsides or the mountainous regions, right? That, that's what you're referring to. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And I, I think that each of the um, people that uh, produce wines in each of the areas, I think, have specific reasons why they like the wines that come from those areas. But, but you know, there's also this thing that when you become a mountain fruit person, you, you kind of are, uh, you know, you tend to, from a, I'm, now I'm, I'm just putting my consumer hat on, like, sure, you know, yeah. what my wine drinking hat on. You know, um, you you tend to have uh, these proclivities, and you, and they express themselves. You know, you go out, and you go, oh, you know, you just you, you find yourself naturally uh, going towards certain types of wines, and you 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 find out, wow, you know, I I do like mountain fruit, or you know, I tend to be more of a valley floor person too. You mean, you know, it can go different directions. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we diverged a little bit. We're mm-hmm. we're gonna have these more discussions into into the uh, sub the geography and the subregions of Napa, but mm-hmm. uh, continue on with the story of Bill. So comes out, starts planting vineyards, um, and uh, we should say that this is Bill Hill of William Hill Winery. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And um, I, I think the way to really uh, sort of segue into what we're doing now because I mean 
I could spend probably three hours telling the whole Bill Hill story. Right. So Bill had he had sold that uh, the winery uh, back then, partly because you know his focus was really on finding these spots, and then over the next you know thirty years. He's been designing and developing vineyards, and um, you know he he had found uh, different investors and partners who would who would go in and help him develop properties, and that's what he had a keen eye for. And the the key, you know, it's not like there's a magic formula for the properties he developed, but he did have a few things in mind. Uh, one of the things being uh, the cooler parts of different um, AVAs. That's part of philosophy, and you really see that in our Pinot Noir project expression. So he went into these cooler areas. They were considered, I'd like to say, on the edge. Our winemaker, Patrick, you know, I, when we talk about the wines, he'd say, on the edge is what they are. And, and the reason they're on the edge is because each property during a full growing season was on the edge of becoming ripe. The idea being is that we wanted to take that full growing season to get a grape ripe. The idea being there, we wanted to not just have bricks at the end of the season. Right. We wanted phenolics. Phenolic ripeness, and that's yeah. where you get your full flavor and not just the alcohol, because sugar this just then turns into alcohol, and you have high alcohol wines, and that actually covers flavor. Yeah, and so, um, okay, so we're on the cooler side of where grapes can get ripe. Do and and so you you've taken these vineyards that Bill has developed. How many? Just to give us perspective, how many vineyards were you uh, are you dealing with on any given time? And that and it's somewhat flux in between years, right? Yeah. The um. So uh, I I really don't even I don't even know. I mean, um, <laughs> I, I I know it's you know more than thirty or forty uh, that were you know out there during the during the heyday of when uh, the, some of these properties are being development. But um, I, I don't even I don't even remember every uh, every name of all the the different the different properties. But I do know is that you know the the focus always was you know um, Bill had this concept he called it American Grand Cru Vineyards, and uh, I think of it this way: is he the way he looked at the West Coast of America is kind of the way uh, you see like these. Uh, you see it all around these burgundy maps. You know, they show all the pictures of all the vineyards. And this is where the Grand Cru one is. And this is. So he sees the whole West Coast and he's kind of thinking like that spot is going to be the one for this. And that spot is going to be the, the one for this. I, I have met people who have a greater depth of knowledge about a specific place than Bill, like they might, you know, because they've been there doing it in right. their, like they make say Anderson Valley or something like that. They've been farming there and doing it for years and they know it. But I've never met anybody in the domestic wine business who has a greater knowledge of the breadth of, and then, and then comparatively speaking, right? Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, it was remarkable. I met Bill a number of year, years ago and he talked about how he saw a piece of land and how he saw how the air flowed over it. Uh, I guess he's a big airflow guy, which is essential for premium vineyards. And so Bill had had success on the winery front, sold William mm -hmm. Hill Winery, started developing all of these um, these vineyards with investors. Uh, and he had some he was successful in finding these ground crew spots. 
lots, and people have been buying these vineyards too, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what happened. You know, um, we had we had made the wines originally for expression. We'd we'd make a barrel or two to show different winemakers or winery owners like what the property could do. You know, if you go back to what I said, it was they were on the edge. The idea being is that um, you know they needed a little to be proven, right? And Bill's the type of guy that he 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 is like, oh yeah, I did this, and you know we're gonna <laughs> prove we're gonna prove it to you. Right. So we'd make a barrel of wine from each of the properties, and that's how you ended up the list. I mean, um, you know, from his Pinot Noir properties, you have you know everybody who's the sort of top names like for like you know Colt people who people who are doing it right. Like they ended up buying either the farm itself. Or the or grapes from the the vineyard, or or even today maybe still have it, or you know just bought one. Right. So th- this brings up an interesting point that I think uh, should be brought to the consuming public's attention is that first a vineyard has to prove itself among producers, uh, and so then the producers start buying fruit from them, and so you have this whole other knowledge. Obviously, the producers are going to know more about what's going on in the industry, but then once producers start recognizing that vineyard as something very special, then they start putting it on the label, and then it comes into the collective consciousness of the public. And that was what you you so originally expression was to showcase the the the, the vineyard to the to the um, the industry and the winemakers who were making wonderful wine and had brands but now you're start trying to bring these vineyards to the public is that kind of the a little bit of the idea I, I, of expression I, I, yeah I think you captured it I mean because uh, the you know it it we were just doing the barrels and I think or expression kind of organically came out of that because we were making these wines for these folks anyway. And, and I kind of call it the, like, he, he couldn't help himself. <laughs> like, um, uh, you know, um, because the, the point is, is that, uh, you, you go out, you, you think that this property is going to make something great and you put that work into it. And, and then you can't help yourself, but want to show that off a little bit. Absolutely. And I, and I think expression is a vehicle that sort of allows allows Bill to have that, you know, full end-to-end experience from the creativity. You know, I went out, I found the spot, we planted, we went through all the trials and tribulations of getting it up and going, you know, it, it's not like you just plant a vineyard and you get grapes the next year. Actually, I was about to ask you that, so I want to I want to sit on that for just a second. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that uh, Bill or whatever vineyard um, um, uh, uh, investor would be exploring land and then they decide they plant the vineyard and then, then how long does it take to have uh, fruit come online and how long does it take to have quality fruit come on the line? You know, you'll you'll start to get something after three years, but you know, um, in in the beginning, um, you know, you I like to say you, you just get to see the potential. You know, the these these vineyards really uh, they really start to get to where they're going. I think after five, seven, ten years, you know, you they really sort of come into their own. So this is not a um, this is not an overnight process, and. And you really, if you think about it, given a time frame that long, you you have to have a lot of faith from the beginning that what you're doing is going to turn out uh, the the way you want it to. And I think in um, if you look at the track record, uh, you know the way we think about how well some of these vineyards have done. Like, okay, remember I stated the goal. Bill wanted to create Grand Cru vineyards, and the way I think about well. 
did did he hit the goal or something like that is I think about based on well who ended up buying the vineyards right. who ended up liking and <laughs> right. and it's a list of folks I mean you have Costa Brown Beaufrere uses the vineyards you have uh, uh, flowers Penner Ash um, you know these are names that I think are well known they have good winemaking teams they have people who think about the business they have people who have a philosophy on how to make wine and um, they they have also different styles but collectively, they all have found properties that Bill's created that fit something that they want to do. And that truly snowballs, too, because you have, uh, it probably took a while to, to build that reputation, but then, uh, like any sort of branding, eventually wineries are going to be like, well, what's Bill's new project? What's the new vineyard that is coming online? I want to grab some. I want to start making wine from it, because maybe five, seven years down the line, I'll want to buy that actual vineyard. You know, I, I think there there is excitement, uh, you know, about uh, it, about some of these properties that's that's happening. And you know, I talked to lots of uh, folks, and I, and we we talked to a lot of the the other you know uh, wine producers in the business too, and just to see you know what they're doing or what they like from a property of a given year. But you know, you start to see in the most famous property, like for example, Gap's Crown. Um, you know, uh, I go to consumer tastings now, and all I have to do is put up a sign that says, taste Gaff's Crown Pinot here. Right. And consumers, they they flock to the table. I, I have people come up and go, oh, I love Gaff's Crown, or I've always loved Gaff's Crown, or uh, I've been a Gaff's Crown fan, you know, for years. And, um, you know, I think it's an interesting, uh, it, it's, just, it's just an interesting situation because these are people that, you know, whether they thought about it uh, uh, or not, they kind of have gotten into that Burgundian way of thinking about things that, that Bill thought about when he saw the properties from the beginning. Right. Gap's crown is Grand Cru. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and folks know that. How do you battle with the fact that, you know, your organization pretty much, um, you know, was, was, was responsible for that vineyard, but then maybe other wineries are more so known for it? Is that, is that a you, tricky thing? That, that expression makes so little wine that um, th- that, that, that branding has almost been taken over by other wineries? Yeah, you know, um, f- from our perspective, you know, we make our wine and we really, we have our own fans and our own mailing list and our own people who, who come and buy the wines. And um, I don't think we begrudge other people sort of success with the vineyards. Um, I think it's a type of situation, you know, these other folks actually, if you kind of flip it around, they're taking what Bill's done and um, and making it more uh more popular, sure. You know, um, uh, there's there's folks that are um, really good at you know branding and getting their wines out there, and, and we're kind of happy that they do some because it, it it helps with all of the properties. I, in fact, I don't I don't expect in the next five ten years for for Gap's Crown to be the only one that that people are talking about, and and I that's not just through efforts of of our own. It, it, I think it's through what other people are doing with the fruit. Right, that's a great point. And I want to, we're going to, um, we're going to take a short break here um, and, and we're going to dig into some of these these particular vineyard plots because there's a lot of interesting things going on. Um, we're here with Kevin O'Brien, who is general manager of the Expression Wines and Prime Solum in Napa Valley. And we're going to bring Steve, in, Steve Alley from the sorting table in uh, after this quick break. 
right, we're back. This is Co-op Radio, KOOP 91.7 FM and KOOP.org. A uh, really exciting episode today. We're here with Kevin O'Brien, who is general manager of Expression Wines, uh, which is their Pinot uh, Noir project, and Prime Solum, which does Bordeaux varieties in Napa. And we're going to bring in Steve Alley from the Sorting Table, which um, which distributes their wines across the country and uh, makes sure that the all of the uh, the business side is going well and fitting into the right places. So, um, guys, thank you again for being here, Kevin. We um, we started this discussion talking about how uh, Bill Hill started planting these vineyards and how expression started to be the the project to show how what great wine they could make. Uh, today, expression continues to uh, highlight the vineyards, particularly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, the Burgund- Bur- Burgundy varieties, right? Um, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And, and so let's start digging into excuse the pun, I, I, I overly use that pun, and digging into the actual single vineyard sites. Yeah, so the um, the sites uh, for expression, the, the wines are labeled for the, the latitude. So we have, uh, you know, 44 degrees, which is Oregon, 39 degrees, which is Anderson Valley, 38 degrees, Russian River and some Sonoma Coast, and then 34, which is down in um, Santa Rita Hills. And um, the the wines themselves, we sell uh, an Appalachian wine, which will be a wine that we might source from a couple different properties. And in fact, sometimes it's just from one vineyard, but from a couple different properties in an area. And um, uh, for example, Anderson Valley, uh, we do one, and also from uh, Russian River. And then we also will have single vineyards. Uh, I talked a little bit about the the Gap's Crown, which is the vineyard in uh, Petaluma Gap. Uh, essentially, uh, that vineyard, it's, it's Sonoma Coast, but uh, we like to think of the areas of the Sonoma Coast that we really like are the sort of true Sonoma Coast, which is right there, a couple ridges in, nice and cool, or that area in the Petaluma Gap. And again, for reasons of temperature, it's such a big appellation that uh, when you order a wine, you're thinking about a wine from the Sonoma Coast, it necessarily requires you to say where in the Sonoma Coast. Right. Because for Pinot, you know, if there's some places I think are, are quite warm, um, uh, and so you get to at least understand the type of wine that you're going to get. But uh, that's on the backside of Sonoma Mountain, and it's um, in an area we like to call uh, – for us, the Holy Grail for Pinot you know, is like that area of cool light. It's got the breezes that come in over the fog layer through the Petaluma Gap, cools it down, but it's still above the fog line enough that – you get the uh, you know solar radiation and so uh, the the cool light. So th- I think that's what cool most cool light. So that and just to just to um, reinforce that point, Pinot Noir needs those cool breezes, but uh, it still needs the light to ripen properly and to get those phenolics. I I, I hear more people talking about UV. Uh, radiation nowadays, um, and and so that's very important. Cool. Yeah, the, I mean, you know, all of us tend to, to kind of geek out a little bit, but <laughs> on it, and it, but it, it's uh, it, it you can't help yourself because it it is you know that, that's why I said three ridges in. The reason why a lot of the coastal ones that are one or two ridges in is because it's too foggy. 
Mm. It might it's it, it'll it'll be covered. You're not getting enough of 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 the of the light. So you know you're you're right. It's important. Um, one of the other single vineyard properties we do is up. Uh, it's the the it's a ranch called Ordway. And um, it's next to Rotor and Navarro, up in the deep end of uh, of Anderson Valley. Now, the the deep end of Anderson Valley is really cool. I mean, it's a Anderson Valley is this nice little, just long, narrow valley. It's fun to go up there, and but it has really different temperature zones. If you're you know if you're down near Yorkville Highlands, it's much different uh, and much warmer than it is uh, up near the the top of the valley, which is where uh, the deep end is. Okay, just to review that, can we start from the ocean and kind of have you go, because it, it really uh, is quite close to the, the ocean near Mendocino, right? And then and then kind of comes in slightly diagonally. That's right, yeah. Yeah, There's a, it comes in down that Navarro River Basin. Um, oh, there's beautiful redwoods that are right out by the coast. And then uh, sort of as those redwoods sort of break away and you get a little more uh, valley, it starts to open up. There's still a little bit of that cool pocket, that cool region near the top, which uh, uh, is called the the deep end, and um, you know um, if you, the the way you know um, uh, you know that it's a uh, it's cool up there for some of those vineyards. You have you know the sparkling producers like Rotor up there, right? And I'm pretty sure they use some of the Pinot that they have up there. You know, um, at uh, you know for the for their Blanc de Noir and their uh, you know Hermitage Reserve and all those wines that they make up there. But you know they use some of the you know it's so cool. That they're using the Pinot up there for sparkling, right? And it's like I started the conversation where I said it's on the edge, and um, you know uh, the deep end for Anderson Valley is the area that's a, it's a little bit more on the edge, and that's why you see a lot of great producers, uh, you know, like Navarro and other people who make great Pinots from that uh, from that region. Yeah, and so that's where the that's where that Ordway property is, and it's also really the source for. Uh, our, um, you know, almost all of the fruit for our Appalachian 39 Pinot Noir comes from there, too. Right, from the Anderson Valley. If I could have you, and Steve, I might have you chime in here as well, the difference of flavor, you know, for folks who, who don't have experience in, uh, in some of the sub-AVAs of California, uh, we're talking about a cool area of the Sonoma Coast, but the, and then we're talking about even further north in the Anderson Valley. How do we, how do you differentiate those in terms of flavor? Well, you know, essentially you want folks to experience the flavors for themselves, but, um, but, but what, what's, what's the first step? What's, what are the clues? You know, I, I'd like to talk about how we produce wines, but I think it's great to have Steve here because he's gone through the wines and, and he's less close to well, them. More than a few times. Gone yeah, through the wines. That's, right, that's yeah. the best part of the job is going through the wines and making sure that they're tasting as they should. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, but you, you're, you're a little more, you're a little more arm's length, you know, um, we end up having a house palette for a reason because you know we end up making the wines we want to make. So um, I, 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 I'll, I'm going to hand that off to Steve. Sure, yeah. yeah. Steve, so what do you think of flavor differences between the two wines? Uh, so with the Sonoma wines, I really like the softness of Sonoma wines. They tend to be very, very consumer-friendly. Lots of soft red fruit rather than tart red fruit. And I feel yeah. like you find more of that tart red fruit up in Anderson Valley. With the coolness up there, you get a lot of tension in the wine. Not not the same tension that you would find in Burgundy, perhaps, but right. you get a little bit more tartar red fruit. You still find that red fruit that is Pinot Noir. 
Yeah. But down down south and towards the coast, depending on where you are, you find that really pretty, friendly, easygoing red fruit. Right. Plush and a little bit more plush. Very round fruit. Very round fruit. And then, um, you know, one of the things we were talking about before the show was this sense of spiciness or earthiness. Correct. Do you feel like you get that a little bit more in Anderson Valley? Correct. Yep. Yeah. And it's good to taste those wines side by side if you ever have the chance because you can really see the expression, pardon the pun, but you can see the expression of what the latitude does and also the sunshine, the mm-hmm. climates and what they do. And yeah. you've got different dirt there also. Dirt also helps to make the wines more expressive. Right. And, and uh, just one thing to comment, I have to say it about Anderson Valley. If, and if you go up there and you're, and you're chasing some of the wines, you know, you, you got to stop. There's a couple of taco trucks in the valley. And it's like, <laughs> if, you have some, if you have some tacos with those Anderson Valley Pinots, um, you've, you've got the makings of a perfect day. Yeah. We've proven some of that here <laughs> also. We've, we've paired um, our Pinots with some beautiful Austin, Texas tacos too, and they have not, um, they've not let us down whatsoever. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good experience to take with you everywhere. Pinot and tacos, absolutely. <laughs> Pinot and tacos. El Pastor. That might be El the Pastor, name. That might be the name. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, we like the El Pastor with the uh, Anderson Valley Marceaux. So we're talking Pinot Noir. We're talking these cool areas. Um, are there any other places that you're that you're excited about? Um, I, I also want to ask: Is is Gaps Crown? Since um, you know you, we were talking about Gaps Crown is located in this Petaluma Gap area, and yep. and that's in peti- being petitioned for uh, an AVA status of its own, right? Do, do you have an update for us where that is? No, no, I don't. Um, I okay. don't have a, a of an update on that. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know the the one thing about the wine world, um, I love so many things about it. But the uh, the com- the compliance aspect of it is sometimes uh, very very challenging. So uh, some of that, uh, uh, you know, right. way, way, way you know, when it comes to all the different like areas and what's going to be about and what the decisions are going to be out, the the processes take a long time. Sure, and um, and then I guess to your point, that whole conversation is moot if you're really trying to brand the actual vineyard. Who cares, you know, if there's a sub AVA that that kind of comes around it, right? Yeah, and Bill's the type of guy. I I mean, quite frankly. Uh, he's the type of guy I think that's just happy when people are talking about the vineyards that that he did. I mean, he really is not uh, he's not a self promoter. He's he's the type of guy that goes into a restaurant, has a meal, and comes out, and nobody knows that uh, that he was there. And um, you know, he's a modest fellow, but he really has pride in these properties. And when people are talking about them, that's that's how. That's what he enjoys. Right. And we should mention that you can find more information. There's some really cool maps that maybe I'll um, hopefully link to uh, on the blog and the podcast uh, on expressionwine.com. Uh, and and yeah. it's really well broken down into into region, et cetera. And so you can see, I'm looking at a map right now of the Anderson Valley. You can really see where, where that is and where the sites are and then how it kind of is cool by the coast and then it comes down and then there's a little bit warmer area as you get towards Cloverdale, et cetera, right? Oh, yeah, that for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, let's keep talking Pinot before we get into your Bordeaux variety mm-hmm. um, project called Prime Solum. Mm-hmm. Um, sh- can we move to Oregon? Oregon yet, or, the, um, or, or more? There's more California for sure. Well, yeah, no, uh, you know there there is, and I don't have, uh, you know, I don't have favorites. I the the way I like to think about it, I mean, if, if we can go on to Oregon, but you know the 
I think about the different wines because we make these different Pinot Noirs that have all these different characters, and then we make these single vineyard wines, of which we make many, and then some up in Oregon. And the, um, to me, I kind of think of it as that, uh, like any wine lover, you kind of you get to have a wine for different occasions, and and uh, meaning your different moods, uh, also your different meals, uh, and uh, you know different friends that are coming that might have different sort of tastes. I, you know, I like to think about the. Um, uh, the reason I segued this way into Oregon is because, for me, our Oregon wines, um, uh, you know, at their best, they represent to me the the wines that I like to have, right in the middle of the meal. Um, these are, uh, you know, some of the Pinots I think um, I could that we make. I'd recommend for you know. Uh, uh, they they might be useful in the even before you know before dinner when you have friends coming over and um, you know you, you're just getting into things. But I really feel that uh, that not just our Oregon Pinots, just a lot of Oregon Pinots in general. That when you're at the heart of the meal, these wines are are showing their best. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I like to receive people with the Appalachian series wines. There's a just a specific color difference on the labels. The Appalachian series are white labels, and then the vineyard specifics are black labels. Right, and it's not that they're one of them are better than the other, but I think that the whites, white labels, tend to be just more approachable from the from the start. And then, as if you're looking for more specific things, the the vineyards really shine in the black label, and you really show what the farming is, and how it relates to the the final product. Yeah. And with the specific the Oregon stuff, I find those to be really structured wines and. And very well balanced. That's what I look for in, in most Oregon wines. But these in particular, they really do show their sight. Yeah. Yeah, there's a vineyard, uh, Zena Crown, and uh, another vineyard, Rose Rock, which were the primary primary uh, vineyards that uh, we've used for Oregon. And both of those are the in the Eola Amity Hills. And um, the reason that Bill liked the Eola Amity Hills is... Um, one, you know, there's so much um, uh, clay and uh, uh, sort of soils up there in Oregon, but uh, Eola Amity Hills um, had a little bit more of a gravelly content. The other thing is, even though it's in the southern part of the Willamette, it, it's basically facing that opening from the Van Duzer Corridor that gets in the, the cooler temperatures. So, you know, even though it's in the southern part of the Appalachian, it's, it gets a little bit cooler. And um, that combination of uh, the you know, you're going to see it like in every vineyard Bill created, the, that little cooler area with a little bit more rockier soil substrate. Um, you know, he, he's been attracted to those areas from the beginning. Mm. An expert in finding them. And then uh, Zena Crown was just bought, uh, right. oh, well, maybe a year or so ago uh, by uh, Jackson family. Yep. And they're doing, I, I had Shane Moore, who was the winemaker uh, there on the show uh, not too long ago. Um, and, and I think Shane's doing great things uh, from that vineyard. You, anybody who gets, any winemaker who gets to get <laughs> Zena Crown has got to be, uh, it's got to be happy. And the, the one thing about the um, the one thing about the names, you know, like you'll notice the, the crown. Like uh, there's a vineyard down in Santa Rita Hills too. There's a bill called Rita's Crown. Like um, this this uh, this name Crown. Like uh, uh, it, it didn't have to do anything over. You know that didn't, wasn't devised over a glass of margarita. Over a margarita was it? <laughs> you know, you know, Bill. Um, you know, Bill, um, he, uh, Bill's, he, you know, he might have had some margaritas. I'm not saying he didn't. Well, couldn't it be whiskey? I mean, yeah. when you're talking about Crown, it could be yeah. well, yeah, something too, to the yeah. north of us. Yeah, yeah but he's, uh, you know, um, uh, he is cerebral 120% of the time. And so uh, there's not a moment that he's not, like, thinking about it. 
thinking about mm, what is best. And for him, the crown is the middle of the ridge to the top of the ridge. And he calls that the crown because he thinks of that as the, it's the, the crown of every property. And the fact that there is a ridge also tells you what he's looking for in a property. He's looking for some slope. Slope sides, yeah. Yeah, which for air, drainage, all of the reasons that throughout history uh, vines have been planted on, on the slopes. Well, actually, throughout beautiful history. Beautiful sunlight, too. Beautiful sunlight, and also uh, the vines were almost um, the, the place that, could, that other crops could not grow, so that those valley floors were for some of the more um, fertile uh, uh, requiring crops, right? Um, and that was what was going on in Burgundy, why, why Burgundy um, found home in that slope. And, and, and Oregon's pretty key about where that slope's facing. So um, that um, that's another that's another thing. You know, I'm, I'm I'm not unlocking all the secrets to what Bill's done here. <laughs> A lot of the stuff, if you think about it, you go, okay, that makes sense, and it it, it all comes together. But you know, that's the thing is he got it. He he's the guy that like put all those things together and uh, went out and got these spots. Absolutely. Well, so we talked about um, Eola Amity Hills. Um, that's the super interesting. Zena Crown, Rose Rock. How do these these two, Rose Rock and Zena Crown, differ in, in quality? And, and maybe we can talk flavor, too. I mean, they both have that kind of typical Oregon tension. Um, you, you, you know, you're asking me a really, really, <laughs> uh, a really tough, uh, a tough question. Um, mostly because um, the... Uh, to me, it's 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 just it's hard to kind of go in with this. You you name like the two hardest for me, <laughs> partly because they're a couple of my favorite properties that that Bill ever did. Uh, I might have to punt this one also uh, to Steve. I, to, I'll be happy to tell you about them. <laughs> yeah, go 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 ahead. <laughs> so uh, what we find with with consumers and also for my own palate that sure. the Rose Rock seems to be the thinking person's wine. Mm-hmm. It seems to be very very deep. It's got a lot of beautiful fragrant aromatic qualities too that sometimes Zena can express or sometimes it cannot. It depends on the vintage really. And Oregon being more temperamental as far as vintage is concerned. Um, it depends on what mother nature is going to get it. You know, the range for California tends to be quite tight in terms of what's a good vintage in quotes or a bad vintage in quotes, but Oregon has much more vintage variation. And I think, and you're, you're on these beautiful sites in the Ole Amity Hills, but you're also looking at, um, how can these wines do now? Because the consumer is looking for something now, not looking for something in five to 10 years. I mean, these wines, once they're picked up somewhere, they're, they're taken home and enjoyed, hopefully with a good meal and people you quite like. But I think with Rose Rock, they're just, it tends to be much more elegant and pretty, sometimes crunchy. It has a slight tip of the hat towards Burgundy. Mm. But Xenoground to me is a little bit more plush, a little bit rounder, sort of like if you're talking about Russian River versus Anderson in the same kind of context, uh, you're looking at, you know, Xenoground being a little bit more crowd pleasing, if you wanted to say, and Rose Rock being a little bit more. Um, of a wine you go inward on and really go, hey, I don't really want to finish this bottle right now. Right. I want to save this for a couple of hours. Right. Um, if, I, if I may, I think um, what Steve just did answers the question, why did Bill do it? And, um, and, and it's also the reason why I punt these uh, questions. You know, um, the, the whole idea is that, you know, we saw these different places. Bill thought that they would evoke different sorts of responses from people. They make different wines, yet, you know, they're all Pinot Noir, and you get to see all these differences. And the reason why he did it is so that people would look at them, 
that come to their conclusions, get their favorites. And, um, you know, I think our, the concept is we want to make it just a little more interesting as opposed to, you know, try to sort of push a flavor profile on every area. The whole idea is it's like to show what each area could do. Right. And not just knowing. So, But that, again, is the challenge for the consuming public as far as, boy, knowing the Willamette Valley and then knowing Eola Amity Hills and then knowing these Grand Cru sites. Um, but I do promise it is more rewarding to, to, to know the, to, to, to dig deeper and to, um, and to keep on exploring. Well, yeah. And tasting the wines is the most important thing. I mean, the consumer, I don't like to use a lot of flavor descriptors because ultimately consumers yeah, will decide yeah, on themselves. Sure. Yeah, I, hate it. I can't tell you that this has got notes of cherry and cola and other things. I'd rather consumers go, Hey, I really like this. And then as they spend more time with the bottle or the, or the glass, then they can kind of d- discern on their own which one's their theirs. But true, but I think that I think that it is helpful for us to give these mm. um, more kind of uh, component type characteristics or more general mood sure. characteristics, such as riper or plusher or yeah, you yeah. know, um, and then and then have folks have the fun of coming up with the individual flavors. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that Kevin hasn't mentioned yet is really um, oak aging, and mm-hmm. most of the wines are made the same. So the, the sites talk a heck of a lot more with, you know, how the wines show themselves as according to the site rather than just covered with oak or alcohol. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the comment I'd make on the oak and winemaking is that uh, essentially uh, I'd like to say we have a, a grower's bias to winemaking. And our winemaker, Patrick Mahaney, he, he, he's been in the industry for years. He, he, was, he spent 20 years with Mandavi when it was owned by the family. And after that, came on. But he, you know, his philosophy is, you know, really to bring the vineyard just, uh, you know, to the bottle. Um, and so the oak treatment, you know, we have enough oak to make sure that uh, the the wine is getting the right treatment. But we never want it to be the uh, the first note that you'd have if you were writing your 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 flavor characteristics of the wine. Yeah, personally, I don't want oak as the first note that I taste yeah. in Pinot Noir. I want to taste the fruit. Right. Yeah, we 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 want the fruit to show. We because again, it's you know we want people to talk about wow this vineyard, I love it or this is the characteristic I, f- I find in it, that sort of thing. Right, and and not just that vanilla up front. The vanilla front <laughs> is coming from from the oak, but also. Uh, Pinot has such delicious natural spice in itself that if you're getting kind of the spice box from the oak, then there's this there's this kind of I don't know cheating, but but uh, it's, well, it's just less it's just le- it's just less true to the grapes, right? Right, you've done the Pinot wrong almost. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and as we said in the beginning, I think before um, we started this, I I was telling you like, uh, uh, well, you know, I like to order wines when I'm out myself, like just by place, and and that's I think what I always recommend people to do. I I th- to think about the regions and um, and, and kind of think about ordering your wines through there. You know, try to find the people. Um, you can, I mean, you can go in any place and ask any of the wine professionals there. You know, find the people that are making wines of place, and um, and then try try out those different ones. And then um, I think that is the makings. That's how a great wine adventure starts. Right, right, absolutely. Well, we have to transition to Prime Solum uh-huh. uh, because 
we're, we're running a little short on time. Mm-hmm. A lot to talk about here. I mean, the, the different vineyard sites are super fascinating, and, and the whole way that Expression Wines comes up with their uh, the, the core of what they do. And, and, and we should also wrap up the Expression conversation by saying that these vineyards that you have designated on the bottle are kind of a distillation of, of, of like we said, dozens of other vineyards, right, that, that don't get maybe recognized. Yeah, there, yeah, there's a few. I mean, we, we make at least eight or ten different single vineyard wines, but uh, the yeah, there's a there's a there's a few. Right, right, and also Chardonnay too. We didn't get into the oh, Chardonnay yeah. conversation, but there are two Chardonnays that generally see more market presence. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the Chardonnay that we make um, again, we try not to use uh, we use more neutral oak barrels. Mm-hmm. We like to barrel ferment so that our Chardonnay comes with a nice texture that you get through barrel fermentation. That conversation with the lees. Uh, but again, when you taste our Chardonnay, I like to think that we're making it on a crisp and refreshing side, uh, trying to get the the fruit not to get into that tropical fruit range of spectrum, but be something that's crisp, delicious, and I think most of all something you can have with a meal, which should never be forgotten. With you know, in terms of the the role of wine, sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then that acidity and that freshness ultimately comes down to the vineyard site, that you can have this physiological ripeness as well as the acidity maintained to, to, to carry you through. You got it. Yeah, excellent. Well, um, let's talk about Prime Solum. If you're just tuning in, we're here with Kevin O'Brien from Expression Wines and Prime Solum and Steve Alley from The Sorting Table. Um what, so what is Prime Solum all about? It sounds uh, it sounds it sounds majestic. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it. You know the um, the interesting thing is I think the name um, the name itself says a lot about the characteristics of the owner. So Solum is this word from soil science, and um, I, I also kind of uh, earlier in the conversation I said, well, Bill can't help himself, and I think this is one of these where he just can't help himself. He because he <laughs> likes to get into it. Um, you know, I have this great picture of Bill standing in this hole on Broken Rock Vineyard, and he's like, he's looking at the soil and things like that. And, you know, it, it has sort of every characteristic of what a posed sort of picture might look like, except for it, it's Bill really, you know. <laughs> oh, he's dirty in the picture. He's doing. He's got a shovel he's doing in his, his hand. <laughs> yeah, he's doing his thing. Doing the work. Yeah, he's he's in the um, he's in the, the hole. So the uh, uh, prime soil. So the the word comes from soil science, and Bill really is just trying to say, the, sort of the best place you know to grow wine, and in this case, a Cabernet Sauvignon. The ranch that we know is the biggest source for prime soil is Broken Rock Ranch. That's Bill's home ranch. Uh, it's right on the shoulder of Atlas Peak. And, and Napa, Val- Napa, Napa Valley. Napa Valley, yeah, yeah. This is Napa Valley. So Atlas Peak, one of the one of the subregions on the eastern side on the Vaca Range. Correct. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the the thing that uh, about that location that's key, and it's the same theme, we get the the breezes that come up in through Carneros. They hit that southeastern part of the valley. It keeps it nice and cool in the evening there. So you might have a really really hot day, but you'll get a, a little bit of that temperature that comes down a little quicker there. And um, it's just, it might not get quite as hot at 3 p.m. because, you know, sometimes those breezes they come up. Um, what that translates into generally is about three to four weeks extra hang time from Rutherford or St. Helena or from uh, some of the locations like that. Um, so Broken Rock Ranch. It's a 95-acre ranch. It's 45 planted. The top block's up on the... Block one is Cap Franc. Then we have some Petit Verdot up there. And then it's mostly Cabernet Sauvignon and a little bit of Merlot. 
Um, the reason it's called Broken Rock Ranch is because that ranch was all was all rocks, and essentially you had to go in and break them up to even even have any sort of situation where it's suitable for for planting. Incredible. Yeah, yeah and um and but but Bill. You know, Bill knew that this was going to be his spot. I mean, he he wouldn't have put his house. He's not a guy who like uh, builds like some palace or puts something. He he has a modest house on his ranch, and he wouldn't put his house on anything but a place because he, he goes out there. He looks at the grapes. He walks the rows. He does it all the time. And that, and I think it's a good thing to also time to talk about his daughter Alana, who's uh, she's a a vineyard rat been out there since the time she was young on that property and she's on our really active on our vineyard side and she goes and you know right now we're getting close to harvest on broken rock they're doing the walk up and down testing the fruit um it's it's a great it's a great time of year yeah and and okay so you know again hillside in napa kind of that back to our beginning conversation of are you a mountainous uh, are you a mountain fruit or a valley fl- floor fruit kind of person um what, you know and then the cool air that is also attacking it that that maybe places like mount veter or you know um or or, or other mountainous areas doesn't really get how does that express itself in the wine you know, um, I think it expresses itself in the wine in terms of the elegance and soft tannins. So, to me, the trademark for Broken Rock Cab and for uh, and for our Prime Solm in general is a soft, dry tannin. Um, uh, you know, um, it, it the tannins are there, and you know, when the, the wines when they're young, you can you can tell that they're they're wound and to such a degree that they're going to be able to last a long time. But there's a it's a softness in the way it expresses itself that uh, you know allows it to have some approachability to it. Uh, the other thing I would say that defines, um, you know, we're, we're not trying, you know, there's so many people I think these days who they're, they're sort of pushing the extraction levels on their, their Cabernet. And um, I'd say that um, I don't like to use flavor descriptors too much, but I, I kind of see it as spiking more in that blueberry uh, Sort of uh, syrupy range, mm-hmm. and um, um, and I th- I think that we we just uh, we we go a little bit of a different direction. I would I'd call it a you know more of a more of a classic uh, Napa Cabernet uh, direction. Uh, you know, um, I think uh, the the folks that you know, for example, you know myself, the the Cabernets I drink from Napa, like kind of the old Rick Foreman or Randy Dunn cabs, like um, you know um. Uh, I, I'd like to think of us, you know, more stylistically that direction as opposed to some of the more super modern. Right, right, right. Yeah. Steve, do you do you kind of agree with that more of that elegance come from Prime Solum? Uh, yeah, you do. There's there's two cuvee of Prime Solum that, that we have. And um, the Napa is only just a small part that's not Broken Rock Ranch. Mm-hmm. And the one that is all Broken Rock Ranch is really beautiful. And I think the Napa's already beautiful too, but the, for different reasons. They're 100% Cabernet Sauvignon, which is very important because other people love to blend and make more of a merited style, make a softer style for earlier drinking. But these wines are accessible on release. Mm. Um, 100% Cab tends to be very linear um, on the palate and tends to be just kind of a fastball straight down the middle. You know, you don't even have time to learn. And next time you know the bottle's gone, that's a good thing. Right. But at the same time, these are, these are wines that are pretty serious. 
and they're not going to hit you over the head with oak or alcohol. They have all the varietal characteristics that you would possibly want. Nice deep black fruit, but you're not looking, you're not looking at something that's going to hit you over the head with that alcohol. And I think the broken rock specifically tends to be a little bit more expressive of the soil that it comes from. Uh, the less nutrients you have in the soil and the more rock you have, it will express itself more with purity. You don't need to, you don't need to torture these wines in the winery. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, and the, 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 the vines, I think, um, the great thing about broken rock is the vines uh, struggle appropriately. You know, they, uh, uh, they're not, um, they're not so comfortable. They don't, uh, they don't get to just sit there and grow like leaves and shoots. They, there's enough stress in them that they, uh, they get to focus on the next generation, which is the grape. The, the one thing about the vineyard, though, that's uh, key, and it's actually um, the other vineyards that go even in the Napa, is that uh, Bill is one of the guys who pioneered high-density planning. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, essentially uh, the idea being is that um, you, you never wanted to have a, a load of more than, like, one cluster per shoot on the, on the vine but at the same time, as a grower, you didn't want to just have one ton per acre. Right. right. And so, when you get about twenty four hundred vines, uh, you know, uh, you know, per per acre, you know, you, you you can you can start to see like how uh, the, with the tight spacing, um, uh, you can um, you can get your yield up a little bit to, to two or three tons an acre. You get the shared canopy from the fact that. Uh, you have the vines in touch size in, in such you know close proximity, but you keep the load on each particular vine down to just one cluster per shoot. And you know some people will get it up to averaging one and a half or so for their vineyard just you know, to push up yields. But but we think by keeping the each each particular vine load low, you get to maximize the concentration in your fruit and the quality of the grapes right right and and he knew this from the very beginning when the, when the vineyard was planted the um we, you know um I, i'm not gonna say i'm I, I i think uh i think the high density planting some of that was replanted maybe 15 or 20 years ago okay. like uh, that um, i'm not sure uh, you know uh, Bill learns as he goes along, just like all of us. He's just had a, he's had a little longer to go along. <laughs> sure, right, right. <laughs> well, well the one thing about um, Prime Solon that's pretty amazing and Broken Rock Vineyard is that the fruit is found in so many other producers from Napa Valley. There's the new guys, the old guys, they buy fruit from Bill. Yeah. It's a great source for Napa Valley Cabernet. Yeah. Uh, you know, Philippe Melka has been a fan, and he uses it in his own wines and also the wines that he is the consultant on. Uh, Chapelet has been buying the fruit for years. Paul Hobbs is a is a big buyer uh, from the the property, um, you know. And, and I think just to, you know, in terms of the importance of a vineyard like Broken Rock, I think it's also becoming more and more important because you're starting to see other vineyards that I would say are in similar vein, like Stagecoach. And I got these vineyards are being purchased, and um, you know we've seen it in the valley. There's folks that are they're starting to wonder, wait, wait, where am I gonna where am I going to source it if some of these vineyards get, get you know, purchased by other folks and then they might not be able to, to get fruit there anymore? Right. right. Yeah. And fruit prices still continue to climb in Napa Valley. Therefore, our bottles that we see out in the market continue to climb. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, if you're, we're, we're going to wrap up this conversation. We're with Kevin O'Brien from Expression Wines and Prime Solon, which we've been talking about, and Steve Alley from The Sorting Table. Um, well, any final thoughts, guys, about what's where we're going? We, we mentioned a, a, a brief um, piece about um, 
uh, or we didn't mention it, but we, we can talk about sustainability in the in the vineyards, which you guys are a big proponent on. It's on the label, um, and uh, and some other things. Any wrap final thoughts? You know, um, I think it's a, I think it all comes down to just doing it right. You know, um, and we're not the only producer that thinks this way. I, I think there's a. I would just recommend to people out there, to, to wine lovers, is is find the people that are doing it right. That does include sustainable practices in the vineyard, it, but it, it it includes you know having an overall philosophy, mm-hmm. and um and then you know you'll you can find the people that are, are end up making the you know interesting wines from interesting places because that's I think that's what the journey is all about. I mean I, when I, I mean um, I work in the wine business, but I'm also you know, I'm a wine lover myself. It's the way I do it. I drink our wines because I like them, but I don't just drink our wines. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm always open. I go out and I, I but I but I will ask when I go into a restaurant. I will ask the sommelier like, well, you know, what are you? What have you found? What are the? And you know, you know, I'm I'm interested in vineyard driven wines. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so you you know you find something you know for me. And um, I just recommend people do that. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And, you know, there are so many wines. I mean, how many wineries are there in Napa Valley these days? Oh, man. For, uh, I actually just looked this up. I'm glad you did because um, I'm stuck. <laughs> somebody knows. <laughs> well, there, there's, there's about uh, 475 um, facilities. There's more labels. More labels, yeah. correct. Because, yeah. of course, the, the, you know, somebody can be making wine somewhere else. Yeah, but, if you go to any good wine shop, I mean, the Napa Valley cab rack is pretty large. Yeah. So, you know, this is another important component when you go look for a wine that you're going to have and you maybe have a little bit more respect for the land. And so you're going to seek some of those wines out. We look for those wines and even at home, I drink those wines. Yeah. 475 wineries in Napa and 700 growers, actually. Wow. Or, or maybe uh, owners of land. Wow. If we, if we look at the number of... Um, if we look at the number of uh, consulting viticulturalists, it's probably a lot less. Yeah, you know, it is one of those things. The the amount of uh, a state a state wine's pretty low. Like uh, the amount of folks that might will own a piece of property and then make wine from it. Um, you know, uh, that's not necessarily the most important piece. But I do like to point out that having a good say in what's happening on the vineyard, in order to get the wines that you want to make, that that it it is important right and uh it's just something that uh you know you should be thinking about well we look for estate grown producers we look for family-owned wineries and um prime solemn fits that expression fits that quite well and they're not just brands they are of place and we like to represent those yeah absolutely well it's a great place to shut it down you bet guys thank you so much thank you mark steve alley from the sorting table and kevin o'brien from expression wines and prime solem i'm sure that there's a lot more that we're going to hear from uh from you guys kevin so keep us in the loop um as you're exploring new new uh projects and new vineyards and uh and we'll we'll see you next time you're in austin yeah Thanks for having me. This is my first radio show. All right. Well, excellent. We love to have that on Co-op Radio. Uh, this is 91.7 FM, KOOP.org, streaming. Uh, and you can also get the, the, the podcast at the archive, KOOP.org, slash another bottle down. Uh, we'll see you next week, folks.